welcome to the Canadian Nutrition Society podcast, Nutrition Conversations, a podcast dedicated to exploring the latest research in nutrition and health in Canada. In each episode, we invite expert guests to share their insight and knowledge on a wide range of topics from dietary patterns to sports nutrition, food insecurity, and food sustainability. Whether you're looking to improve your own health and wellness or simply stay up to date on the latest developments in the field of nutrition, we hope you'll join us on this journey to better understand the role food plays in our lives. Please note that the views expressed by speakers in CNS podcasts are those of the speaker and not necessarily of CNS. Sitting in the host chair in this episode is the Scientific Director of the Canadian Nutrition Society, Dr. Sharon Penhe, who will be talking to Dr. Wendy Ward on Episode 9 of Nutrition Conversations on the role of nutrition for supporting a strong skeleton and the connection with osteoporosis. Hello, Nutrition Conversations listeners. According to our most recent data, 2.3 million Canadians age 40 plus are living with diagnosed osteoporosis. If you're interested in how food and food components may set a better trajectory for bone health throughout the lifespan, then you're in the right place. Dr. Wendy Ward is a professor and research fellow at Brock University in St. Catharines, Ontario, and she's passionate about understanding how novel foods and food bioactives modulate a healthy skeleton throughout the lifespan, along with supporting organizations that advocate for bone health. Dr. Ward is currently the Editor-in-Chief for the Journal of Applied Physiology, Nutrition and Metabolism, and holds other leadership positions within Osteoporosis Canada and the Canadian Nutrition Society. She was also the recent recipient of the 2023 Volunteer of Distinction Award from Osteoporosis Canada and is actively involved in continuing education for health professionals and community education activities on topics about nutrition and health. So with that, I welcome you, Wendy, to Episode 9 of Nutrition Conversations. Thanks, Sharon. It's a pleasure to be here today. Thanks so much for, for being here with us. Well, I first learned a bit about bone health, osteoporosis, and the role of certain nutrients from you when I was taking your undergraduate course on vitamin and mineral metabolism at U of T. So it has been quite a while, and I'm looking forward to hearing about sort of what's new and exciting in the field. Uh, So maybe we can start off with an overview of osteoporosis, its significance as a health issue, particularly for aging populations, and how you got into uh, research in this area. Osteoporosis increases the risk of fractures, and unfortunately, this results in excess mortality and morbidity and can greatly decrease quality of life of individuals. Why osteoporosis is putting people at risk of fracture is because there's a loss of mineral in the bone, and there's also a loss of three-dimensional structure of the bone. So the bones are becoming quite weak. And that's why um, bone is more prone to be fracturing. So daily activities in individuals with osteoporosis, um, such as twisting or, or bending, can result in fractures that wouldn't normally happen if the bone was um, healthy and strong. I think one of the things we need to be cognizant of is that among Canadians, um, there's 150 hip fractures per 100,000 people in Canada. And that's quite significant, especially when we think about the fact that one in five Canadians with a hip fracture will die of any cause within the following year because of complications. 
And we also know that men and women uh, differ a little bit in how they fare. Uh, women are two times more likely to fracture their hip compared to men, but men don't do as well after a hip fracture. And men are in fact 1.6 times more likely to die of any cause within a year of a hip fracture compared to women. So we do have some, some differences there as well. I think you also asked me about how I got interested in, in studying bone, and I attribute that to um, my early summer research positions with Dr. Stephanie Atkinson at McMaster. I was a first-year student in the Arts and Science program, and I read about her research in the um, on-campus newspaper at the time, and I was fortunate that she actually um, took up my interest in being part of her lab group and kindly met with me. And that's where my interest in bone health started many, many years ago now. Okay, so that's a great over, uh, overview, Wendy. Thanks so much. Um, and so maybe we can start off also by talking about two nutrients that are important for bone health. So calcium and vitamin D. Very common. We kind of, you know, have this knowledge, well-established knowledge around this area. So Maybe you could summarize what we currently know about the impact of these two nutrients on bone health outcomes. Sure. Of course, uh, you know, these are the nutrients. When you ask someone about nutrition and bone health, usually it's calcium and vitamin D that come up. Um, we, we know quite a bit about their role uh, in terms of bone health because the dietary reference intakes are based on outcomes of bone health for calcium and vitamin D. Uh, for men, if we're talking about older adult populations, men 51 to 70 years require 1,000 milligrams of calcium per day, and then this increases to 1,200 milligrams per day once a man is over the age of 70. It's slightly different for women at age 51. Um, at that age, the recommended intake is 1,200 milligrams per day, and it stays at that level. So for women, the level is already at a higher level at age 51 compared to men. And that's mostly because of uh, effects of aging on bone health. And we know that as we age, we're not utilizing our calcium as efficiently. And to help support that loss of bone loss that's happening earlier in women, that recommendation is, is a bit higher from age 51 on. And for vitamin D, uh, for adults age 51 to 70 years, it's 600 international units per day. And that increases uh, over the age of 70 to 800 international units per day. And again, that increase in the recommended intake is simply to help support uh, falling levels of 25 serum hydroxyvitamin D that can occur with aging, and also the, the changes that are happening to bone, and we're starting to lose more of our, our bone mass with age. So those higher levels of both calcium and vitamin D are there to help further support our bone health as we age. Great. And so how can we ensure that we're getting enough calcium and vitamin D in our diet? Well, Health Canada, in terms of, of vitamin D, is already recommending that all Canadians um, age 50 and over, are that they're taking 400 international units per day as a supplement. And that's because vitamin D is not very plentiful in our diet. And so unless you're you know, drinking a lot of milk or fortified beverages or having fortified foods um, with um, vitamin D, it's going to be tough to get that recommended level. Uh, so in taking the supplement, as well as consuming a diet that's as rich as possible in vitamin D, uh, 
you can probably achieve that uh, recommended intake. For calcium, again, similar foods are going to be helpful to consume. Of course, the dairy products, uh, especially milk uh, or fortified beverages, if they're fortified with calcium and yogurts. And, you know, you, you unless you're, but uh, if you're not consuming those types of foods, it can become more challenging to get the calcium that you need from your diet, especially at that level of 1200 milligrams per day. We know there's a lot of foods that contain small amounts of calcium, uh, but to really get um, the higher levels per serving, you're looking at those um, dairy foods. And even um, foods like salmon with um, the bones, if you're having the tin salmon in a salmon sandwich and crushing the bones, you can help to uh, increase that calcium intake as well. Great. So basically, we know um, the role of calcium and, uh, and vitamin D in bone health has been extensively studied. You've kindly given us, you know, the, the DRIs, how we can incorporate it into our diet. But I also think of other nutrients such as protein, for example. So in the context of a bone health and maybe switching gears a little bit from the calcium and vitamin D, can you elaborate a little bit on the role of protein and um, are there specific recommendations regarding protein intake for maintaining bone health? Protein is a really interesting nutrient from a bone perspective. I would say we don't, we still have a lot to learn about the role of protein, specifically in fracture prevention and, and maintaining bone mineral density. Uh, you know, we have, and others have been on uh, this podcast series talking about protein, and so it's been said that the recommended intake is 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day. And I think what I'm understanding from the experts that work more in protein than I do is that this is considered a minimum level to help maintain nitrogen balance. And in fact, for some tissues such as muscle and, and in the context of aging, higher levels may be appropriate. And there's certainly um, data to support that. In terms of bone health, we just don't have a lot of evidence that higher levels are supporting um, BMD to a greater extent and protecting against fracture in healthy individuals and individuals that are consuming, you know, levels of 0.8 up to 1.3 grams of protein per kilogram body weight per day. So we really need more information about that. There's not, um, there's very little literature looking at actual supplemental levels. So, but beyond what those natural dietary levels would be and looking at fracture outcomes. So there's a lot to still be uh, studied there. And I think when we think about aging, there are a lot of different stages in aging and frailty is a topic that comes up quite a bit. And it might be in individuals that are frail that those are individuals in which the protein intake needs to be assessed and managed more carefully to support bone health. Um, but those are, you know, unique individualized uh, situations. I think the other thing with protein is that in physically active people as they're aging, you know, what should that recommended level of protein be? And, and we still need data to support what that recommendation would look like. 
And I think also, if I can just go on a little bit more about protein, I think type of protein is really interesting when we talk about bone, uh, because we know that, you know, sources of, of dairy foods, for instance, are not only going to be sources of protein, but also have a lot of those bone supporting nutrients that we just talked about, calcium and, and vitamin D as well. So there's a lot to consider in, in choices of protein as well. And I think this is a very fertile area for future research. And I'm actually glad that you mentioned the, the source of protein because um, I was actually going to ask you about uh, plant-based versus animal-based sources and, and you know, differences in their, their impact on bone health. And is it possible to sort of comment on, on that? And Well, I think we don't really have any studies that have been able to look at uh, enough data or have enough subjects that have differing levels of animal versus protein or, or mixed diets to really make a conclusion about whether source matters in terms of, of bone health. There's a lot of dietary factors that are going to need to be controlled for to look at those kinds of studies. Um, just going back to protein in general, you know, a lot of studies have looked at levels of 0.8 to 1.3 grams of, of protein. So even at those higher levels, I guess a good thing is that we're not seeing negative effects to bone health in, in healthy populations. So that is encouraging as well. Um, I think in terms of, you know, thinking more about plant proteins and other nutrients or even bioactives that are offered in plants, there's some interesting opportunities there for research. Absolutely. And, and you talked about the protein supplements earlier, and um, I had noted that um, they're not recommended in the current guidelines. Um, and these recent guidelines that uh, um, I'll, I'll let you perhaps uh, discuss a little bit. So, um, you know, could you maybe explain the reasoning behind that and, you know, what's maybe covered in, in the guidelines? Right. In terms of the, the recent guideline and the recommendation around protein, um, based on the data available, it was concluded that there's likely to have little to no benefit or detrimental effect on fractures in terms of protein supplementation. And again, you know, I, I mentioned the positive of data that's out there. And we have to also remember that the data that we do have tends to be in very healthy, well-nourished, older individuals. And so that can be a limitation of how we can interpret the data. And as I mentioned, you know, they're dietary levels essentially that have been studied. They haven't truly been supplemental levels that have been looked at. So I think for um, there's a lot of room for research in this area. And as I mentioned, you know, put on top of that or put with that the whole frailty situation and also physical activity uh, and how protein needs might change and, and could potentially impact bone health. All right. So, um, no, that's that's great. We've covered calcium, vitamin D, protein. Uh, we know there's still a lot of other novel foods and uh, food bioactives, like I mentioned earlier. So maybe we can shift gears a little bit and discuss some of those food components that we would maybe not have thought to be associated with bone health. And so... Um, I've seen some human studies suggesting a benefit of tea consumption on bone health since it's high in uh, polyphenols. And you might have mentioned this earlier, and I know you've done a lot of work in this area. And I was taking a look at one of your papers published in Critical Reviews in Food Science and Nutrition from 2017. And for our listeners here, it's called Tea and Bone Health, Findings from Human Studies 
potential mechanisms and identification of knowledge gaps. So I was wondering if you could maybe elaborate on the significance of uh, tea or, or polyphenols in our diet and the, their potential impact on overall health. Sure. Yeah, as you know, I've had a long-standing interest in bioactives, whether it be lignans, isoflavones, and more recently, we've moved more into the T-polyphenol field. And a lot of our work that we're doing is based on, you know, these epidemiological studies that are showing associations between people that are consuming, you know, several cups of tea per day, whether it be black or green tea, and that being associated with higher bone mineral density. And there's also been um, more recent studies showing in cohort follow-up time periods of about 10 years that green tea consumption, um, individuals that have higher levels of intake, so greater than three cups per day compared to individuals who are consuming maybe less than one cup per day, that they have a lower risk of fracture. And so there's a lot of interest in what these polyphenols can potentially do. And in our lab, we've done um, several in vitro studies. So where we've stimulated uh, bone cells with various polyphenols. And indeed we are seeing an increase in mineral um, production as well. Now that's in vitro. And so it can be very different to what we see in vivo. But I think there are a lot of um, mechanisms at play and we're, we're starting to look at more of those mechanisms in our in vivo models. Um, there's a lot of interest in potential antioxidant activity by the polyphenols. And then you put that in the context of aging and higher oxidant stress. There could be some mechanisms at work there. And we've also shown in our work um, that osteoblasts are, you know, a, a, uh, are responsive to these polyphenols. Uh, the polyphenols are definitely stimulating an increase in that osteoblast activity. And for those of us that have been away from, from um, our bone biology for a while, those are the cells that help to build bone and create, um, manufacture the collagen that the calcium can become embedded in. Um, other colleagues have looked at effects of polyphenols, specifically T-polyphenols, on osteoclasts, which are the bone cells that break down bone, and they're seeing that that breakdown activity is being slowed in the presence of polyphenols. So a lot of these mechanisms need to be tested out now in in vivo models and may actually help to explain what's being seen in the epidemiological studies as well. Oh, that's that's great. That's uh, that's super interesting. And so, from my understanding, there you need you would need to drink three or more cups of of tea to see any beneficial effect. And and there's no difference, I guess, between uh, the the teas, um, yeah. the different types of teas. That's a good point, Shrin, because there's you know there's a lot of different types of tea, and even when we think about uh, black and green tea, which of course comes from one plant, Camellia sinensis plant it can have very different uh, polyphenol profiles. So you have a lot more of the catechins with green tea. And for sure the catechins and green tea have been studied a lot more in terms of overall health effects, whether it be cancer, um, cardiovascular disease, or even bone. 
Um, and then if you, you know, further oxidize the green tea, you're going to get to black tea, but then you've got more of the teaflavins that can have different biological effects as well. So there is a lot of room to look at these different polyphenol profiles as well. And then I just wanted to go into a completely different type of tea, which is from a different type of plant, is uh, rooibos tea that we're seeing more and more in Canada. And it's a unique plant um, compared to Camellia sinensis because it it naturally contains no caffeine. So then it starts to get you into another scenario where you could be consuming higher levels and not have the concern about uh, caffeine intake. And so some of our more recent work is really focusing on that rooibos tea, which of course is, you know, grows wild and is grown in uh, South Africa. So I know uh, you're a big tea lover. I like my tea too. <laughs> but I, I tend to drink my tea black. Um, I tend to drink uh, a type of Persian tea. Um, but I, I know it's common for a lot of people to add milk to tea as well, which is also a source of calcium. So have you looked at that in, in some of your studies? Would that you know maybe make a difference or, or not really? We, we haven't, but it's thought that, and I have read uh, other papers by other experts uh, from a while ago now that talk about the fact that if you add a couple of tablespoons of milk in your tea, that the, um, that the loss of calcium that happens when you're consuming caffeine is probably balanced by the extra milk that you're providing in your, in your tea. So it is, you know, as with so much in our diet, it's about balance. Um, and moderation. So I think that's a good thing to keep in mind for sure. Absolutely. And so um, we know, I mean, tea has other nutrients and, and even caffeine that may even perhaps have negative effects. So I was just wondering if you could elaborate on the relationship between other components such as caffeine and maybe uh, calcium or, or calcium excretion and how that might impact uh, bone health and it's generally felt that if you're keeping within the recommendations of keeping your caffeine intake under 400 milligrams per day, and if you're getting sufficient or the recommended levels of calcium in the diet, that the, the balance between caffeine and calcium is fine. No, no need for concern. To give um, the listeners some idea about caffeine intakes in tea, probably you can estimate maybe at most 50 milligrams of caffeine in a cup of tea. And we have to remember that serving of tea. And so if we're trying to keep below that 400 milligrams, it gives you a lot of room for several cups of tea. If we just roughly estimate how much caffeine's in coffee, coffee would have about double the amount of caffeine per serving. So that puts it into perspective in terms of tea versus, versus coffee, or if people are trying to balance how much caffeine they're getting um, per day. So it seems that if there's, you know, you're consuming, um, you know, a couple of cups of tea, getting enough calcium in the diet, there's no evidence to suggest there's a, a concern for bone because of the caffeine there. And I think, you know, something we have to keep in mind too, is that there are a lot of other tea varieties out there that are not caffeinated as well. So if you want to have a bit of caffeinated tea and then uh, some herbal based or rooibos, which is naturally caffeine free, you know, there's lots of options out there. And right, I, it's all about the balance. <laughs> it's all about balance. And I think, you know, we have to remember what a serving size looks like too. Because uh, I think sometimes we lose a bit of perspective on that and keep that in mind when we're looking at how much caffeine we're consuming per day. 
Right, exactly. Um, so maybe I can ask you sort of a final question here. And, and based on our discussion, what we know so far about osteoporosis, your expertise in, in, in this area, what would your overall recommendation or key takeaway be for our listeners? And um, I feel like I'm asking a lot of questions here in the same. <laughs> but are there, are there resources and tools that are also available to us uh, as well? So, uh, you know, it's the old recommendation of consume a balanced diet, right? Stick to whole foods, foods first. Um, that's one of the themes from the nutrition section of the, uh, the recent guideline for bone health. Um, you know, try and get your nutrition through foods, um, except in, you know, that case of vitamin D where we know we can't probably get enough in our diet and we should be taking that 400 IUs um, per day. But I think we also need to think about um, exercise and physical activity. And in Canada, we have a great resource of the 24-hour movement guidelines that are telling us the importance of sleep and giving us guidance on how much sleep we should be getting, about how much we should be moving and types of exercise we should be doing, um, and reducing sedentary time. Uh, you know, those are three key factors. And I think you can't look at diet without looking at um, physical activity and these other uh, lifestyle acts, aspects, including sleep. And for those that maybe haven't seen the 24-hour movement guidelines, they're freely available online. They've been made for us as Canadians. Um, they're very clear and they're for different age groups. So just like our dietary reference intakes are for age um, specific groups, we, we have the same there. And I think I really encourage that. The other thing is just uh, being a bone health researcher and being concerned about preventing fractures. You know, if we can prevent more falls, that can be a huge benefit too. And so when you think about, you know, functional training or balance training, that may help to reduce falls. I know I'm switching back and forth between uh, diet and activity, um, but also thinking about uh, muscle. And, you know, it could be that maybe we need more protein to help with the muscle and um, balance and functioning. So I think being mindful of, of the bigger picture while still focused on, on bone health can be useful. And in terms of kind of knowing how much calcium we're getting in our diet, um, Osteoporosis Canada has a really nice tool. It's been around a long time and it's, it's a really useful one to estimate our calcium intake and it's called the calcium calculator. And I know that on the Osteoporosis Canada website, there's going to be other resources that come to support the, the recent guideline as well. So I'd encourage people interested in bone health and nutrition to, uh, to check out the resources that will be available. I think that's, uh, that's a great message to leave our, our listeners with, to take proactive steps like the ones that you just mentioned to care for our bone health is definitely an investment to our future well-being. So thank you so much, Wendy, for taking us on this journey to understand the role of nutrition and osteoporosis and how to protect our bones. And, and perhaps we can continue the conversation one day over a cup of tea. I'd be happy to, Shireen. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Nutrition Conversations. We hope that you found today's discussion informative and inspiring. If you're interested in hearing more about the latest research in nutrition and health, be sure to check out our website at cns-scn.ca-podcast for upcoming episodes. You can find us on various platforms including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. Simply search for the Nutrition Conversations podcast on your favorite app and you'll have access to all our episodes in one place. We release new episodes at the end of each month, so mark your calendars and stay tuned for upcoming episodes. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode.